You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, what does Vladimir Putin want to do in Ukraine or in Syria or in the Baltics? I don't know. Does he want to recreate the Soviet Union? I would if I ran Russia. I mean, who knows? Just like a schoolyard with bullies um, is a very peaceful schoolyard if there's a one, one big bully. Now, now, normatively, morally, we may not like it, but hey, he or she, they impose order. This week on Adventures in Finance, geopolitics takes center stage in our commentary feature. Yeah, this week I revisit a conversation I had with Marco Papich, the chief geopolitical strategist at BCA Research in Montreal last year. Populism in Europe is mutating. And it's mutating into a form that I, as an investor, don't really care about. As an investor, the only thing I care about, given that I don't invest in the Euros, is are these guys going to take their countries out of the Euro area or not? Bringing fresh insight to this timeless interview is co-founder of Real Vision, Raoul Pal. Is the role of government to drive GDP growth or is it to look after the population and maybe sacrifice GDP growth? And my co-host and co-founder of Real Vision, Grant Williams. What's happening here, if, if these central banks are actually being taken places rather than going to where they want to go, people really have to look at this through a whole new framework. Also on this week's show, we have our long short segment where Grant and I go through the good and not so good stories of the week. And my long for the week um, is inflation, which apparently, according to The Economist and every other publication I seem to read, is on the way back. And apparently that's really good news. Um, This one particular guy, Howard, he had been spending four to five nights a week uh, at a 7-Eleven since March 2015. Wow. So for this one, it was tough to figure out what I'm short against. And we hear from Louis Garf, the founder of GavCal Research, on what he got wrong in China's capital liberalization. So... You know, I was saying earlier, it's three steps forward, two steps back. It's felt more like three steps forward, three steps back. And that you're running hard to stay more or less in place. It's like one good week, one bad week, one good week, one bad week. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan. And this is Adventures in Finance. Today is February 2nd, 2017, and welcome to Episode 2 of Adventures in Finance. All right, so some of you may not be aware, but my co-host, Grant Williams, he spends his days jetting around the world, racking up the miles, and scouring the globe to speak with the smartest people in finance. And it's, you know, as a result of that, it's rare for us to be in the same place at the same time. So he usually calls in from wherever he is. It could be Singapore, Seattle, uh, London, Cape Town. It's absolutely impossible to pin you down. And so I like to play a game called, Where in the World Are You, Grant? Well, uh, Aaron, I'm cold, wet, and grey, and so is London, coincidentally. So that's uh, that's where you find me this week. <laughs> that was going to be my first guess. Well, I am the opposite of that. I am warm, although it is kind of cold in the office here in the Cayman Islands, but uh, we are here. And uh, for those of you who are just joining us, this is episode two, but do check out episode one where we did an in-depth look uh, on the India demonetization. So make sure to check that out. But today we're going to kick it off with our brand new segment we call Long Short. Yeah, this is where Aaron and I pick out a couple of stories of the week um, that we think uh, give an idea that's, uh, that we're long, we, we like, uh, and that we're short, that we don't like. All right, so Grant, uh, what do you have in mind for this week? 
And my long for the week um, is inflation, which apparently, according to The Economist and every other publication I seem to read, is on the way back. And apparently that's really good news. Um, deflationary fears are on the point of being banished at last, the headline said. Uh, Central bankers rejoice. Yeah, I mean, look, this is something we've been trying to generate for ages. They've put so much into generating this magical 2% inflation. And supposedly, the fact that, uh, you know, German CPI has jumped to 1.7% in December um, is good news. Uh, Obviously, the chances are it's going to overshoot. So I'm not 100% certain that the return of inflation with all this kindling uh, on the fire, isn't necessarily going to be a good thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either, Grant. I mean, it, it seems like this just may be a temporary impulse, you know, coming out of those base effects for, for oil. So I, I'm, I'm also skeptical like you that this is, a, this is a sustainable kind of uptick in inflation. Well, I think long term, you always bet on inflation. Um, we haven't seen any really long-seated um, periods of deflation throughout history. But my God, they're putting their shoulders behind this and desperately trying to get trying to get some inflation. So we'll, we'll see if it's we'll see if it's good or not. Um, time will tell. But what's uh, what's your long for the week? Well, my long for the week is a 94 year old Malden, Massachusetts native by the name of Amy Creighton graduated with a 4.0 GPA, a Bachelor of Arts in Creative Writing and English. <laughs> and uh, she first she actually first attended college in 1962, but then had to put her education on hold in order to take care of four kids. And she just finally completed her degree and she's looking to complete her master's as well. And and she had some kind of very inspiring quotes as she said, um, I couldn't see just sitting there watching Netflix all the time. There's nothing on TV. I don't watch soaps, just sitting, doing nothing, learning nothing, being nothing. At my age, you have to be careful of being nothing. And she continues, expand yourself, expand your knowledge, expand your life. I'm trying to live my life to the fullest. And when I read the story, it just, it really resonated with me because uh, lifelong learning is something that I want to pursue and, and I deep, I believe in deeply. So uh, Grant, this week I am long, lifelong learning. Well, 94 years old, I, I, I feel like I'm catching her a lot faster than I really want to. I, I can't imagine the difference in uh, the average mindset of the college student on the campus she gave up in 1962 to the one she, she found herself in today. But uh, let, let's move on to the short for the week. And for me, this is something that I've been following for quite some time now, and that's the retail sector uh, in the US. I read an article this week, uh, I think on Bloomberg, saying that uh, they reckon 10% of the retail space in the US, which is a billion square feet, May need, yeah, a billion square feet may need to be closed um, uh, in the coming years. That's, I mean, we've had 5,000 stores closed in the past 18 months. That's 50 million square feet. So if you do the math, that's an awful lot of stores that have to close. Now, if you look at um, companies like Sears and Macy's, since Thanksgiving and the start of the supposedly bonanza shopping season, you know, those shares are down about 30% each. So I'm looking at the retail sector. Uh, a lot of it's supposed to be moving online. But to me, it just doesn't feel as though the U.S. consumer is in a really strong position. So I'm I'm watching the uh, the U.S. retail sector as a short very very closely. I, I read somewhere, Grant, that um, a shopping mall that was bought for a hundred million dollars was eventually sold for a hundred dollars. Yeah, look, this ha- this happens. This is what happens in in troughs. You know, there, there, there's 24 square feet of retail space per capita in the U.S. I think in Canada it's 16. Yeah. There's an awful lot of of overcapacity there, and it's going to need to shut. And, and of course, as you drive around the country, it looks really bad. You know, when you see these these malls with half the stores closed, yeah, it's not a good look. So, uh, I think the U.S. retail sector that's definitely my short for the week. Yeah, and and just thinking about y- if yields continue to go up, and and if these retailers have a bad time, I mean, it's probably it doesn't bode well for the REITs 
who own a lot of these for assets. Sure. For sure. Uh, my short for the week, uh, also a story I read on Bloomberg, and this was more of a, a, a sort of a personal level. I was reading about these Uber drivers who sleep overnight in gas stations and at 7-Elevens um, and uh, grocery store parking lots. And they do so because they can't earn enough money to live close to some urban area that they're driving. So in this in this example, it was uh, Sacramento and San Francisco. So a lot of these drivers were, were camping out overnight. Um, this one particular guy, Howard, he had been spending four to five nights a week uh, at a 7-Eleven since March 2015. Wow. So, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I don't, I don't even... It's tough to figure... For this one, it was tough to figure out what I'm short against because... You know, I, I do like the fact that Uber is providing an option, not only Uber, but Lyft. And there's um, uh, other options if you're in New York City and other cities, but that's providing an option. But at the same time, I mean, this this wealth disparity, this income disparity is, is in some ways driving people towards a, a job that is soon to be, I think, in my opinion, automated away. Yeah, this is, this is something um, there's been a lot written about this, uh, the idea of driverless cars, driverless trucking and uh yeah, truck driver is the number one occupation in the United States of America. So as right. this technology um, broads and expands, you know, there's a huge upside potentially to it. But really, the downside of that uh, is something that I don't think we really understand the full extent of just yet. But it's 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 kind of incredible to to hear. I mean, when they talk to this guy who is sleeping in his car four to five nights a week. He says, I signed up for this because I am my boss. I kind of own the business and I have the freedom and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, these labor advocates, they don't know what it's like to be a driver. They think we're not being treated right, but I'm happy. If I didn't like it, I would do something else. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's not for everybody. Um, and yes, Uber and, and the like have done a lot of good things, but uh, you know, with, with change and with progress, definitely comes uh, pressures elsewhere. Uh, the unintended consequences of this and the knock-on effects that we talk about constantly on Real Vision uh, are only starting to be felt now. So we'll, uh, there's, another, there's another story we'll have to follow. Absolutely. All right. So this week we are introducing our commentary feature where Raul and Grant revisit a past Real Vision TV interview to share their thoughts on the concepts, frameworks, and ideas presented in the interview. This week, we begin with an emphasis on geopolitics. Yeah, this, um, you know, 2017, uh, you know, as we're recording this, we're, we're less than a month into it. Uh, and already, you can see that geopolitics is going to be uh, a, a real focal point, not just for, uh, for people that watch the news, but for investors as well in 2017. So, uh, you know, we thought this was a great opportunity to revisit a conversation with Marco Papich of BCA. And just in general, I'm excited about this series because the listeners really get an opportunity to be a fly on the wall while you and Raul share your reflections and insights on a pressing and relevant topic. And, you know, Grant, you've held senior positions at a number of investment banks and brokers all around the world. And on top of being the co-founder of Real Vision, you're also the author of Things That Make You Go, Hmm, the wildly popular financial publication. Now, Raul Powell, your partner in co-founding Real Vision, is a former hedge fund manager, Goldman Sachs alum, and author of the critically acclaimed Global Macro Investor Newsletter. So I guess we just thought that by bringing both of you together to revisit a past Real Vision TV interview, it would, I guess, not only yield some new insights, but also give the listeners a window into how you might think about the ideas presented by top quality analysts and hedge fund managers. So without further ado, here is this week's commentary segment featuring Marco Papich. So how do we do this? How do we analyze politics and geopolitics? Our method is very, very 
very clear. We focus on policymaker constraints uh, rather than their preferences. Uh, preferences are ephemeral. It's very hard to get into a policymaker's head. Uh, what does Vladimir Putin want to do in Ukraine or in Syria or in the Baltics? I don't know. Does he want to recreate the Soviet Union? I would if I ran Russia. I mean, who knows? Um, we can't really base our investment decisions on preferences because it's very difficult to get inside a policymaker's head. But also, I would argue that it's not really relevant from an investment perspective because what Putin wants is different from what Putin can do. And so that's why when investors think about Mario Draghi or Janet Yellen or Vladimir Putin or whoever, Donald Trump, I think we need to always think about constraints and preferences. And I think the market is consistently pricing these questions and consistently making mistakes. Obviously, that's great. That's great for us as investors because we can then bet when the market is overpricing risk that that will ultimately dissipate, that risk premium, or when uh, there's a situation like Brexit where the market has consistently underpriced the risk because it assumed the constraints to voting to leave were great, that's where volatility can go up and we can know that ahead of time if we get our forecast right. See, that to me is one of the most important clips of the year. I remember it struck me when Marco said it, when we were sitting down in Montreal to talk. But when you think about what's happened with Donald Trump since then, both in terms of him winning the election and then the market reaction afterwards, that clip is just a jewel because Trump is going into a world where there are constraints. He has no idea what they are. In the business world, he understands the constraints. He knows how to work around them. In the world of politics, he has no idea. His first job as a his first day on the job as a politician is as president of the United States of America. And so the constraints he's going to face are enormous. And flip to the other side of that, the market has completely mispriced them. They've assumed he's going to get a flawless execution of everything. And here we are. So I think that's such an important clip. But yeah, for me, I'm maybe I'm a simpleton. I I don't even understand how to apply this. It's, <laughs> right. it's, it's not it's not clear, you know, what your perceptions are versus the reality. You know, I don't. I don't actually know how to apply this. Trump's relatively clear. Yeah, but sometimes, you know, in terms of he talked about v Vladimir Putin, I really have no idea how to apply that. Right, but and I think this is a great part of this because Putin is a stone cold politician, right? And and he's got to where he is by being able to play the game and move the pieces around the board in a in a way that suits him. So you're only ever going to get the sense of what he's doing if you can get inside his head, which we can't. Whereas Trump. I think is a, is a lot more easy to get inside his head because he just leaves it all out there. And arguably, I mean, there was a great documentary about this uh, recently. Part of what makes Putin unique is he purposely goes out of his way to muddy the waters in terms of, so nobody really knows why he's in Syria. Nobody really knows what his intentions are on anything, which is very clever because it means it's almost impossible to analyse him through any framework. Yeah because you just don't know. And Trump's the opposite, right? Every thought he has, he tweets. So here's an interesting thing is, in this documentary, they were talking about how there is a guy who basically runs Putin's policy. And what he does is he sponsors kind of riots um, by all sides of the political spectrum. He sponsors bikers in Russia who are pro-Putin or against Putin, does all of them, and then freely admits in the media that he sponsored everybody. So nobody knows what's a demonstration, right. that's real or not, what state sponsored, what isn't. So it completely muddies the entire water. So kind of Putin's playing the complete other side of this, which is interesting. But as you say, the Trump side of it is much clearer, I think. Well, the, the market has rallied so fast on optimism that he's going to get everything he wants done. Uh, and I just think when Marco talks about the constraints, 
they're going to be enormous. Even though he's got the House and the Senate, he's still got to go and speak a different language. You know, Pippa Malmgren always says, you know, I speak Federation and Klingon because she's ex-policy and works in the markets, which is such a, a great line. But this is true here as well. Trump speaks business, not politics. And I think the other guy who's really good for this is, is Pippa's dad. Yeah. Because he's been around the block a long time. He's, you know, simple things that he talks about. He said, you know, everybody expects policy to happen immediately. But the fact is, you've got 4,000 White, uh, White House staff that need to change jobs. He goes, they spend the first three months arguing over who gets the window view right, and all, right. you know, who gets the basement office and all of that. And then all the alliances and who reports to who. He said, nobody can do anything because they're all like small kids being put in their new classroom. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great point. I, I just, I loved that interview with Marco. Um, and uh, I, I thought that clip was a, was a real standout. But just like with the success of Donald Trump, just like with success of Bernie Sanders, you're having a paradigm shift. Uh, occur at the political level in the West. Uh, and this poli- paradigm shift has to do with the fact that globalization has really uh, made winners and losers. And in many economies, uh, the winners uh, are actually far few in between and the losers are the majority. And so there's a lot of angst about the low growth, somewhat deflationary, debt-ridden malaise that many households are dealing with. And uh, some households react to this by voting for someone like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. Others vote uh, for Donald Trump or Brexit to, to, to move away from some of these pillars of globalization that have existed for a long time. So when we looked at the United Kingdom and the United States, it was very interesting to us because political risk, populism, anti-establishment, uh, those movements are replete throughout the West, throughout capitalist systems today are in a t- post-2008 environment. But the market is appropriately pricing this risk in Europe. That's what's very interesting. Valuations are low. There's clear movement of uh, risk assets whenever there's an election. You have Podemos in Spain. We have five-star movement in Italy, alternative for Deutschland and Germany. We all know this as investors. I mean, you know, on the road, I get asked more about Austrian elections or Portuguese elections than Brexit. And so the market has appropriately priced, maybe even overpriced, this fear of populism in Europe. But when it came to Brexit and the U.S. elections, there was this uh, sense, complacency, if you will, that, oh, well, you know, things will be better. U.K. and the U.S., there's no real, you know, populist um, problem. There's no real anti-establishment desire, but there is. And I would argue, actually, that what's happened is that the less fair economic growth model uh, less fair economics, small state, small taxes, uh, very few regulation, uh, things like labor flexibility, which uh, make a difference between an entrepreneurial and a statist economy. All of these things that we think of as an Anglo-Saxon economic model uh, are, do produce superior economic performance. They do produce more productive economies, but they have a politically pernicious side effect, which is that protections for the middle class are actually few and far between. So technological and and globalization, these changes have led to the middle class as percent of population in the US and the UK declining to 50%. There's a lot of angry people in both economies and the market has really ignored that for a very long time. Now, it's not brain surgery, right? It's not rocket science. Middle class and its relation to democracy has been well understood. Aristotle wrote about this 2000 years ago, for God's sakes, you know, and and the, the point here is very simple. Middle class has stuff. If you have stuff, you're not going to want to see that stuff eviscerated in a revolution or a war. So you're going to vote for you know, moderate change. You're going to vote for the status quo to be slowly moderated towards some different paradigm, not revolutionary change. But when you have only 50% of the population, 
in middle class as the U.S. has. It's gone down from 60% in the 70s to 50. In the U.K., it's from 70 to 55%. When you have that kind of a move, you're going to have a lot of people who do want radical change, you know, no matter what the elites and the establishment wants. And I think that really is the context in which we have to understand what's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. And in my view, the market is pricing political risk in Europe appropriately, but not in the Anglo-Saxon world. And we're just now coming to face with that. It's funny, right? Yeah, when you listen to these things after the event, it's all so clear, right? And then, but at the time, you know, I, I was talking to Marco a long time before the U.S. elections, and you know, this stuff resonated with me because I felt at the time that Trump was going to win, um, and so this really struck me. But I think that point about the middle class uh, and the evisceration of the saving generation is so important, and that's a big driver of what's happening. I think one of the things um, I've talked a lot in the past about. James Goldsmith and his view yeah. on globalization, which I think everybody should go and look at James Goldsmith being interviewed by Charlie Rose Charlie on Rose YouTube. It's astonishing for a pure capitalist to argue against globalism in the way that it's set up currently. Oh, and this was 25 years ago? 1996, before the WTO was signed. Yeah. Um, I think the main point that he made that really struck me, I'd never heard anybody say, was what is the role of government? Is the role of government to drive GDP growth but not have commensurate rises in the average income and the standard of living for the population? Or is it to look after the population and maybe sacrifice GDP growth? I remember speaking to the SMB, the Swiss National Bank, back in the early 2000s. And I went to see them. We talked about where monetary policy was going and how the world evolving. And they said, listen, Ralph, it's largely irrelevant for us because we're a rich nation. Our key is not economic growth. It really doesn't help us. What really helps us is making sure that our savers and our populace stay wealthy. And that I was staggered, you know, because most people go for growth over everything. And there is something, I think, that part of the change that's going to come is the understanding that it is not all about growth. I think Trump's card now is to play the, the uh, growth card again. But I think it's still going to fail because it's not producing the, re the results that people want. You know, you can bring manufacturing back to America... But the problem is they're going to robotize it. <laughs> yeah. And in which case you're not going to employ anybody. So it's not helping. So I think that structure and role of government itself, be it on the left or right, and not arguing for one political system or another, is just not consistent with what people actually need. Well, the, the other interesting thing about that, of course, is you know, you're talking directly to the Swiss National Bank, and that's their objectives. They don't care about growth. They don't care. What they're worried about is the population of savers. And yet, negative interest rates. They get dragged down into that place where they clearly don't want to go. They peg their currency somewhere clearly they don't want to go. They're being forced to do this. And, and if that's what's happening here, if, if these central banks are actually being taken places rather than going to where they want to go, people really have to look at this through a whole new framework because that breaks very easily. If they're not willing to go there, it's going to snap back. Yeah, and that's the, you know, one of the issues of the modern age is how central banking has become government in itself. Yeah. Now, um, in terms of the big picture question, there's going to be a who's next premium applied to Europe, naturally. And uh, I think we're already seeing it. So while most of government debt is reacting as if we're about to have a great plague or Viking invasions, you know, we're at multi-century lows in terms of yields, uh, the Spanish, the Italian, and most worryingly, the French yields, 
which usually react like German to every single uh, instance of euro area crisis, these peripheral yields, if you will, are starting to go up a little bit. Now, if you were to blow out the chart and actually look at it on, on the long-term horizon, I mean, there's no, there's no question that this is a, a, a minor blip. Nonetheless, they are starting to react. And I think that who's next premium is going to affect European assets. We're already seeing a very similar, for example, assets like the Norwegian Krona or the AUD reacting a little bit differently. Uh, just because it's in Europe, the Krona is getting hurt more by Brexit than the uh, Australian dollar. Now, I actually think that that's an investment opportunity for investors because the United Kingdom has political, demographic, geographic, historical, um, if you will, enablers to leave. Its constraints are much lower to leaving than any other economy in Europe. And in fact, and this is the, the irony of populism and how the market is pricing it, populism in Europe is mutating. And it's mutating into a form that I as an investor don't really care about. Um, so the Spanish want to spend more money. Okay, you know, ECB is suppressing yields. That's beautiful. Go spend. Germans want to expel some immigrants. As long as they're not the Eastern Europeans in a common labor market, I don't really have a problem with that. As an investor, the only thing I care about, given that I don't invest in the euros, uh, and a lot of my clients invest in dollars or Canadian dollars or Swiss francs, the only thing global investors care about is are these guys going to take their countries out of the euro area or not? And that question is resoundingly being answered, no, across every European country. Now, this is something the media is not talking about because it's not sexy. The theme of Euroscepticism is, is being combined with the theme of populism. But I think that who's next premium will dissipate and create a buying opportunity. We're actually seeing already in the Spanish election, Podemos is doing well in the polls because they've gone away from Euroscepticism. Because they're focusing on traditional left-wing politics. We'll spend more money. Okay. In Italy, uh, the Rome mayor candidate of the five-star movement, uh, Virginia Raghi, she is likely going to win. And she has just said that, no, she doesn't want to take Italy out of the euro. And she's probably going to be the highest ranking five-star movement um, personality in Italy. So you're seeing this mutation where in continental Europe, I would argue because middle classes have been preserved to the detriment of their economic efficiency, granted. However, that has created this uh, muted populism. Populism is there, anti-establishment parties are there, but they're not really asking for a complete break with status quo, which as an investor does comfort me a little bit, even though they might spend more of other people's money. Whereas in the UK and the US, I think we as the investment community, probably because we mainly are located in these two centers, um, in many ways we've lost sight of the fact that the actual desire for change may be greatest in these two economies, the UK and the US. Because with dynamism, with entrepreneurial qualities of a laissez-faire economic system, also come these politically pernicious side effects, which is that, no, US and the UK haven't protected their middle class. That's why you've got Google in the US and not in France. But France grew its middle class from 60% of population to 70 over the last 40 years. And we have to wrap our minds around these issues. Uh, and so, yes, I think the longer term question of who's next in Europe will actually be a buying opportunity because I don't actually see anyone being next after the United Kingdom. Well, this is one, I struggle with this one, I have to say, and, and I, I totally understand Marco's logic behind it and, and it certainly resonates with me. But I think post-Brexit, what I think has happened, and he was right about Five Star stepping away, you know, they've broken their um, alliance with the European Party for Freedom and Democracy and they're looking to try and make other alliances that are less Eurosceptic. 
But if you look at what's happened post-Brexit, you look at the doom and gloom scenarios that everybody painted about what would happen. Britain was basically going to fall into the sea after they, after they left the EU. And what's happened? The, the data's come through stronger. Doesn't necessarily mean there's anything to do with Brexit, but it hasn't fallen into the sea. A lot of well-respected economists and the governor of the Bank of England have had to make U-turns and say, well, you know, it's not nearly as bad as we thought. Britain's going much stronger. Now, whether there's a delay, a lag in that effect uh, of Brexit that's still going to come through six months from now, seven months from now, who knows? People are going to go to the polls in France. They're going to go to the polls possibly in Germany late in, in uh, October, and they're going to go to polls in between in the Netherlands, looking at the UK and thinking, hey, the Brits have done great out of Europe. And I worry that that is going to be the driving force, that the perception that Britain's doing much better now they're out is going to just put those people on the edge over. Having lived in Europe for, you know, I lived in Spain for 10 years, I kind of think the European psyche is different and we're using Anglo-Saxon mindset. And I think Marco kind of alluded to that, is when you do go to Spain, Italy, France, Germany, the middle classes have done extraordinarily better. You know, Spain, enormously slow, even with this, this you know, big depression that they had. Because, you know, what was weird in Spain to me is when things were really bad, and they were really bad when I was there, very few people were in the streets. 50% of youth unemployment, what do they do? Stay with mum and dad. And I was that really surprised me, because I was expecting, you know, yes, there was some rioting in the streets, but it was much smaller than I thought. I thought, oh, wow. You know, so maybe he's right. Maybe we overprice the risk. But the problem is you can't overprice a risk where it's so binary, because if they leave... Exactly. You know, the European bond market, for example, that's a complicated mess. Yeah. It's a complicated mess for a number of issues in terms of sovereign default risk. And so, yes, he might be right that the propensity is it for not to fall apart. But if that probability is 10%, but the outcome is extreme, you have to price that in. That's so exactly right. I think he's... It's a great yes, point. I think you can do that and, and fade that trade, but you're picking up nickels in front of a steamroller because that one event that does happen changes everything. Let's move on to the next clip. We've talked a lot about domestic politics. We've talked a lot about what I call bottom-up politics, geopolitics. But there's also top-down, more macro, and that has to do with states. And it has to do with power distribution between uh, nation-states. And there, again, political science theory does help us uh, think about the world. Uh, international relations are an anarchy, uh, pretty much. There's no rules of the game. And so what really matters in tempering that anarchy or varying it, if you will, is distribution of power between states. Just like a schoolyard with bullies um, is a very peaceful schoolyard if there's a one, one big bully. Now, now, normatively, morally, we may not like it, but hey, he or she, they impose order. If there's two bullies, you've got a little bit of tension. So the schoolyard's probably split, there's some rocks being thrown, whatever. But the reality is like, as an investor, you can sort of know what's happening. There is some equilibrium. The problem with a system where global power is distributed in a multipolar way, uh, where multiple countries have the ability to pursue their foreign policy independent of one another, the problem with that is that that equilibrium doesn't really get formed. And um, it may be morally and normatively a beneficial system. It's a world in which more countries can pursue what their national interests are. I mean, isn't that a great thing? Well, that's for someone else to discuss. My perspective is always, what does that mean for investors? And what that means for investors is there's more uncertainty. That world, the geopolitical equilibrium is much more difficult to achieve. 
Uh, and the equilibrium of different global regions is much more difficult to achieve. So you have the Middle East, which is in a complete disarray in disequilibrium. I think it's slowly a new equilibrium is emerging. Uh, and I'm not necessarily worried about it. But for the last five years, you've definitely seen the effects of multipolarity as the United States deleverages from the region and Saudi Arabia has to leverage up. So today, Saudi Arabia spends more on military than any other country other than China and US. They've overtaken Russia. Why? Because of this multipolar world where the US can't focus in on the Middle East for too long. Now, in East Asia, on the other hand, the disequilibrium is quite pernicious and quite worrying. In East Asia, uh, China has become a, a very powerful country, uh, more than any other country. I mean, if you look in 1990s China and today, I mean, China's power projection was probably equivalent to that of Belgium. Well, today it's not. It's the second largest country in the world, and it's more than capable. And, and most, you know, most clients in the U.S. Um, don't see it this way. Uh, a lot of Americans have a problem thinking about it in this way, but China has more than sufficient power projection capabilities in East Asia. Yes, it may not be able to challenge the United States uh, off the coast of Madagascar or off the coast of Cuba, but within South China Sea and East China Sea, it is a peer competitor to the United States. And that's something that the U.S. administration has taken very seriously, uh, whether it's Obama, whether it's Mitt Romney, whether it's John McCain, I really don't care who it is. Uh, any administration of the U.S. would have taken that seriously, and they've pivoted to Asia uh, in order to counter this Chinese rise. And that's created tensions between the two uh, economies. It's uh, exacerbated tensions. And every single year that we've been observing this, the tensions in East Asia have gotten worse. And so I think what investors have to realize is that we really had a Goldilocks scenario from a geopolitical perspective as well. A single country, a hegemon, a superpower, really running the world, providing global public goods, resolving the global collective action dilemma by being the big bully on the block. You may not like it as an investor. If you're French or Chinese investor, you may have a problem with America being a superpower, but the issue is it resolves that uncertainty on the geopolitical front. And it's been a very good time for us as investors. That's breaking down. And it means more uncertainty, it means more conflict, and it means more inability for us to really project where the world is going. What better time to throw a wild card into the mix like Trump? I mean, you know, this is, as I've watched the, the cabinet appointments come through, I've been struck by a clear antagonistic tone towards China in these appointments. You look at Lighthizer, you look at Navarro, the two guys who are going to perhaps have the most direct contact with the Chinese in terms of trade treaties and, and what have you. They stand out. They are, they are absolutely died in the wool clear have a, a very negative opinion of China and what China's doing and I don't know whether this is a tactic if it is I worry that it's a hand that could be very quickly overplayed because the Chinese as I've, as I've written about recently are in a year where they're going into the 19th National Congress in the fall they need stability and so they may be biting their fists and not reacting to stuff like the phone call with Taiwan that ordinarily would have seen you know naval exercises the following day off the coast you know and I worry that we've got uh, Trump, who is painting China as this, you know, the currency manipulator, as the, you know, killing us in trade, all this negative negativity. He's put guys in place to deal with him who have a very negative attitude going in towards China. And the Chinese perhaps are going to be a little bit more docile than they ordinarily would be. And that may embolden him. And I, I worry that this situation could escalate to not in any kind of conflict direction, but it could escalate to the point where the two sides just 
step apart the same way the US and Russia have done. What, what are your thoughts on that? I don't really know. I mean, thinking about what Marco's saying, it's relatively interesting because let's say, let's play the other side of what you've just said, and let's say Trump's tactics work, and basically they get the economic upper hand. If that's the case, then the US exerts itself as a more powerful nation. What does it look like? What does the economic upper hand for the US look like, though? Well, it means that most of the capital flows of the world don't flow into China. China's the world's largest exporter. So if you cut off cash flow to China, it allows economic superiority from, from the US. And so, therefore, they're less under threat. The Chinese have less ability to spend and build, you know, naval bases or whatever it may be. And it kind of slows China down on their route to where they're going. Maybe that's possible. I kind of am more like you. I'm suspicious of... I, I, I never like seeing cages rattled and you don't yeah. rattle the Russians and you don't rattle the Chinese. You kind of have to peacefully coexist because that playground can have some regional bullies in it. Sure. And that can be the status quo. But if you start creating alliances that are antagonistic, let's say, to the US with China moving towards, let's say, some sort of currency union or, you know, some freedom of exchange amongst a whole group of nations where they exchange their goods and services in non-dollar denominated services, in non-dollar denominated money, then you've got issues that can lead to other outcomes that, you know, that I don't like. You know, the last time the world stepped away from globalisation was the, was ahead of World War One. Um, and the end of the British Empire. And so I don't like the outcomes because nations pushed against it. If they need to protect their populace, certain types of nations do certain types of things. So China could automatically become more aggressive elsewhere. Um, and again, this is the part of geopolitics is very difficult to read because I just don't understand different nations' psyches. Um, but it does concern me. It does concern me the build-up of military power within Japan. It does surprise me what's going on in the Middle East because as Iran becomes more prevalent, and, and rightly so, because it balances the region out a bit, but then Saudi starts ramping up again. It's like, you know, this we could do without this, because I don't know the outcomes. And again, much like we talked about with the European breakup, the outcome of, let's say, war, which is what we're talking about, really, the outcome of war may only have a 10% chance, but the but if that were to happen, if that 10% chance is the ruling factor and it, it occurs, the outcomes are so devastating. Um, and I think Marco's right. This needs to be priced in. How you price in this kind of risk... Well, that's it. You're exactly right. I really it, don't it, know. It's such an asymmetric outcome. And, I, you know, having spoken to some... Had some odd conversations with people within the Pentagon and stuff, I think they're fully aware how weak China's economy is right now because of the debt situation, the massive over-investment boom, and it's very fragile. Now, if the US had an antagonistic government, which it may do now, we don't really know. One of the p- tricks they could use is to push that outcome sure. to basically do what happened to Japan, which Japan stopped becoming an economic threat the moment their economy blew up. And we're 30 years into that, and nothing's ever recovered. And what we've got is China with similar kinds of demographic cliffs, similar kinds of massive debt, the biggest overinvestment boom the world has ever seen, If you are the US and you play that strategic game, the the game that I don't like to see that's hidden from us, hopefully, because it's all a bit horrible, is basically, well, at their weakest point, 
if you were to force them to devalue their currency, if you were to force them into a corner, they would not be an economic threat going forwards for the next 20 or 30 years. Well, and, and there are social stability issues in China, which happen very, very fast in the bond market. Anyway, look, that's um, that's the last bit with Marco. It's it's uh, it's fascinating to listen to him. You know, he's he, he's a really interesting guy with, with a unique perspective, and, and I enjoy spending time with him. And, and you know, it's great for you and I to get the chance to sit down. And yeah, discuss I, was, it. I actually hadn't heard Marco's piece before, and just really fascinating how he looks at the world differently. You know, different than ways that I'd even thought of. I think it was great. I love that, learning from stuff like this. Yeah, that's that's a big part of the beauty of what we do, right? We find people all around the world who who have that unique perspective, and and it's not right, it's not wrong, and and trying to bring these ideas to people in a, in a forum where they can listen to them, digest them, and disagree as you do with some of the things, disagree as I do, but let it help broaden your own thinking. It's it's a great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So Grant, the beauty of what I get to do is, you know, I get to go through the back catalog of Real Vision TV content and find these hidden gems in our library. I mean, Raul said that he's, he, he even hasn't seen this interview. So uh, when I came across this, I, I felt like I just had to share it with the listeners and get you and Raul to, to talk about it. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's funny, as I said on the lead into this, it, it, geopolitics is something that uh, people need to really learn on the fly now how to uh, apply that to any risk strategies they're, they're putting in place because uh, as we've seen since uh, the 20th of January things change in a hurry these days and there are so many different forces pulling and pushing at uh, policymakers all around the world uh, and, and decisions are getting made in a hurry that affect every trade on the planet so people really need to develop a framework to try and overlay political risk and, and listening to people like Marco is a great way of, uh, of doing that alright well let's move on to our next segment we call things I got wrong uh, Grant, you spoke with Louis Gov in January, and we found you guys had a fascinating conversation. And we picked up a particular clip where Louis addresses a mistake he made on evaluating China's stance on capital liberalization. Yeah, th- this this idea of going back to investors and revisiting things they got wrong was really important to me because you know it, we all get plenty of opportunities to listen to success stories, um, and great investors understand that. It's, it's managing the things you get wrong that separates the good guys from the bad guys. I mean, being right oftentimes is lucky. Um, being wrong and managing that risk effectively is important. So with Rewind, we wanted to make sure that we sat down with people and asked them about things that got wrong and, and, and get them to explain how they dealt with it, how it adjusted their thinking, because I think there's a lesson in there for ordinary investors that is, that is really important to understand. All right, so let's check out the first of two clips to hear what Louis had to say two years ago about the liberalization of capital in China. The way I look at China is that the story starts with Deng Xiaoping in 78. When Deng Xiaoping comes to power, he has control over everything because the guy he followed, the guy that preceded him was a nut job who wanted to have absolute control over everything. Uh, can you think of anything worse, by the way? Having <laughs> to make so many decisions on everything. But anyway... Um, the guy, so Deng Xiaoping comes in and he says, well, I got control over all these things, but fundamentally it serves no purpose because I have no power. Nobody takes me seriously around the world. So he decides, you know what? I'm going to give up control for power. I'm going to free up the labor market and see where that takes me. And of course, the economy goes, woof. And since then, each time the Chinese economy has slowed, the answer of the leadership has been to free up parts of the economy and get another wave of growth. So see, most people in the West, when you think of China 
and they see the success of central planning. It's actually exactly the opposite. Central planning was Mao Zedong. The story of China over the past 30 years is the story of liberalization. It's the story of the government retrenching. And each time the government retrenches, each time growth, blows up, growth re-accelerates. So first it was labor. In the mid-90s, you had the liberalization of real estate. Massive boom. Mid-2000s, liberalization of commodities. Massive boom. And so now having liberalized land, labor, raw materials, you had the final frontier, which is a liberalization of capital. Um, trying to move away from a system where you have four big state-owned government, ban- state-owned government banks that own that have about 80% of the market and 80% of their loans go to state-owned entities. Um, you, and the reason China needs to move away from that isn't because it makes economic sense, although of course it does. Um, it's because they have no choice. And they have no choice because the single biggest challenge that China confronts is not the slowdown in growth, forget that. At the end of the day, these guys don't need to be in the growth business. They're in the social stability business. And the big challenge in China I've studied in China in the early 90s. At that time, China was graduating 300,000 university students a year. Now, China graduates 6.5 million university students a year. And these 6.5 million kids that graduate university, they don't want to work in a steel mill or a factory. They want to work in a job like yours or mine. They want a service industry job. And this year, you don't have 6.5 million guys retiring from service industry jobs in China. So they need to create service industry from nowhere. Now, if you're a government, it's easy to take a map and say, we need to put a motorway here, a dam there, a port here, an airport there. So we'll capture all of the people's savings and we'll reallocate it into this infrastructure spending. Governments you know, can be decently efficient at doing that. Um, and China's government has been efficient at doing that with, of course, a lot of money falling in the wrong pockets along the way. Um, but governments can't sit, sit around and say, all right, we'll build a money management business here, an advertising business there, a sports marketing business there. The service industries come from the bottom up, not from the top down. And to get service industry going, you obviously need educated people, which is what China does have. But you need these educated people to have access to capital. And this is why financial, they have no choice but to embrace financial deregulation. So that was Louis thinking two years ago. Now let's hear what he had to say most recently and see what happened to his prediction. When I look back at that clip, I was embarrassingly too optimistic. Um, perhaps the part I underestimated uh, was the extent to which uh, Xi Jinping uh, is a bit of a control freak. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, when he came in, they came in talking a great game. You know, we're going to regulate this, create a big bond market, etc. Um, now, to be fair, progress has been made. Um, you know, as a foreign investor, it's now basically possible to buy do- not only offshore bonds, which was possible back then, but, but domestic bonds. Um, the, the, trading in the, re- the trading in domestic shares is also uh, being opened up. But there's been a lot of stumbles along the way. Obviously, last summer's intervention uh, in the market was sending completely the wrong signal. Yeah. Um, the stopping of the market and the circuit breakers, completely the wrong signals. Um, and today, you know, all these um, reports of tighter and tighter capital controls also sending completely the wrong signals. Um, So, you know, I was saying earlier, it's three steps forward, two steps back. 
when it comes to capital control, I'm more like three steps forward, three steps back. Right. And that you're running hard to stay more or less in place. It's like one good week, one bad week, one good week, one bad week. Having said that, um, you know, if you look at the coming 18 months, China will join uh, a number of indices, both on the equity side and on the Thinksingham side. So today, you know, every foreign investor freaks out at the thought of, oh, there's all these outflows from China and the mom and pops can't wait to get their money out, et cetera. I think the question they should ask themselves is, what happens when China joins the global bond index? Hmm. You know, let's say China joins the global bond index tomorrow and is, for the sake of argument, because it makes the math easy, let's say 10% of the global bond index. Um, well, most global bonds yield zero thereabouts, I mean, in Europe, in Japan, et cetera. You know, if China yields three and a half, you can't, as a money manager, be underweight China. Yeah. It just like, it becomes, unless you're making a bet that this thing's about to collapse, you know, the, the, the negative draw, the weight uh, guarantees underperformance. Um, and how many trillions are benchmarked for either completely passive invested or benchmarked against these indices? Um, and you know, as China joins these indices, who's gonna be the marginal seller? You know, once, once they decide, once the MSCI, Barclays Global Bond Index, et cetera, decides, all right, China's in, which again happens in the next 18 months given the pace of liberalization, mm -hmm. um, Who's going to be the marginal seller? Because uh, it won't be the Chinese. You've lived there forever. You know that these guys are fundamentally momentum investors. Sure. Things start to move up. They don't sell. They buy more. Yeah. Uh, which is why the Chinese stock market goes from eight times earnings to 50 times earnings. I always again. remember your, your story that you told me about the roulette, right? The roulette, that, that's right. That sticks in my head every yeah. time I think of this stuff. Yeah. No, so they, things, you know, they see a trend, they play it. So once the foreign money starts to come in, which it hasn't, you know, who today has 5% of their... Uh, assets in China. Absolutely nobody. Mm. Um, China this year, every year for the past 10 years, and again this year and the year after that, China's been a third of global GDP growth, give or take. Uh, and again this year, this past year, in 2000, for all the talk about how China's collapsing, etc., China in 2016 contributed more to global growth than Europe, Japan, and the U.S. put together. Mm. You know, for all the talk about how China's collapsing. And who has 5% in China? Nobody. Yeah. Who in Three years, we'll need to have at least 5%. Everybody. Who's going to sell it to them? You see, now listening to Louis there, it, it, this is why I, I'm so excited about this segment because, you know, there's nothing embarrassing when you're an investor about being wrong. I mean, and reflecting, being honest about mistakes you've made in terms of forecasts uh, and understanding what you need to do. Are you wrong? Or are you early? And if so, how do you adjust your thinking? How do you adjust your, your positioning? You know, Louis makes a compelling case for China, in my opinion. I, you know, I still think he's a China bull. Um, some of the things he talked about haven't happened yet. And the question that investors have to ask themselves is, have they not happened because things have materially changed? Have they not happened because they're not going to happen? Or have they not happened yet? And each one of those, depending on how you handicap it, results in a different strategy uh, as an investor. So I, I, I love this segment and, you know, Louis is a super bright guy and, you know, kudos to him for coming on and saying, hey, let's talk about some of the stuff I got wrong. I think it's, it it's, it's shows what a big man he is to, to come on and do that. I agree with you 100%, Grant. And I think he did it uh, brilliantly as well. I mean, I think the case also is very compelling for China still. Um, when you consider that China has yet to be included in some of the major global indices, you know, be it Barclays, JP Morgan Chase, MSCI, or even Citi's global debt gauge, um, 
there's still tremendous upside there. Uh, maybe there's some challenges with the tax rules and the currency hedging, but I think the long-term case for China is, is highly compelling. And I think uh, Louis communicates that brilliantly. All right. Well, before we go on, I just want to get this out of the way. Guys, anything you've heard in this episode should not be construed or considered as trading advice. You know, These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your own technicals, and trade responsibly. Well, that's the show for today. Next week, we will be back with our usual segments of Long Short and Things I Got Wrong. Uh, but next week's feature will be about German real estate, where we're going to explore the global and local forces changing the investment landscape there and transforming this once sleepy market into an emerging hotspot for investors. We're going to hear from uh, a dear friend of mine and one of the, one of the leading investors uh, with a lot of first-hand experience in what this market has been doing over the last five years, and that's Stephen Diggle, uh, the founder of Vulpes uh, Investment Management in Singapore. What's missing is a mass participation in this market. Now, institutional buyers are definitely around, and they have been for some time. But what moves Anglo-Saxon property markets is mass participation. And we've got seen no signs of this whatsoever. Um, Because from a tenant's point of view, they've heard about the fact fact that prices might be going up. And at a few cities, so inner city Munich, inner city um, Berlin, inner city Hamburg, prices have gone up a fair bit. But in almost all cases, it hasn't actually led to significantly higher rents. So if you're a tenant, it's kind of a story that you hear about, but it doesn't really affect you. And helping us bring the German real estate story to life is Bern Ondruch, founding partner and CIO of Astalon Capital Partners. Real estate has been one of our themes since inception of the fund. We are very structurally bullish on, on German real estate. And you know, we can see that now. That has been a, you know, five years ago, you wouldn't have a conversation with someone in a pub about you know, real estate. Today, it's a topic. If you like what you heard, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. It keeps my bosses happy. And you can follow us on Twitter at Real Vision for the latest updates on interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Just search for Real Vision. Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at, at TTMYGH. And you can follow me at Macrodidact. That's it from us for another week. Uh, we will see you next week. All right, man. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com